Chichester Cinephile, the podcast for Chichester Cinema at New Park in Chichester, West Sussex. Find us at chichestercinema.org. Hello, it's time for another Cinephile podcast for Chichester Cinema at New Park. There are still no films to preview at the cinema, so we will again be creating a mini cine circle to discuss some films we've seen. And we will be making some streaming recommendations to help alleviate the effects of lockdown. We have a profile of a director, a look at food in films, and the second part of a double bill about Beethoven in the cinema. We also have a brief tribute to a film fan who's been a major part of the Chichester cinema scene for many years who died recently. Let's meet the team for this podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Godsmark, and I'm part of the cinema team. Hi, I'm Patrick, and I'm part of the education team at the cinema. Hi, I'm Sue Gilson. I am an enthusiastic friend of the cinema and a volunteer steward. And I'm Sandy, and I'm just a regular at the cinema. The films we're going to be looking at at our version of the Cine Circle, which is usually held at the Hornet Alehouse in Chichester will be Da Five Bloods, Just Out and available on Netflix, Kings of the Road, 1976, available on the BFI player to stream and for rent on Amazon and Apple TV, and Bringing Up Baby from 1938, which can be watched on the BBC iPlayer for over a year. We will be discussing them after this. The first film will be introduced by Sue. A Spike Lee film is always a hotly anticipated event, and the recent release of the director's 23rd film, war drama The Five Bloods, could not have been more timely, coinciding with the Black Lives Matter protests in the States and around the world. In three decades of filmmaking, Lee has continually exposed racism since films like Do the Right Thing exploded onto our screens in the 80s. And here he gives urgent focus to the shamefully under-recorded part of the Vietnam War story, that of the black soldier. The Five Bloods follows four aging African-American Vietnam vets as they revisit the scene of the battlefield to bring home the remains of their fifth blood, revered squad leader Norman, and to hunt down lost gold. War is about money. Money is about war. Every time I walk out my front door, see cops patrolling my neighborhood like it's some kind of police state, I can feel just how much I ain't worth. Gave us something to believe in. A direction, a purpose. Taught us about black history when it wasn't really popular back then. Schooled us about drinking that anti-commie Kool-Aid they were selling. Yeah, he was our Malcolm and our Martin. Norm had a way of keeping us from going off. He wasn't no Tom. He was a bad mother. Shut your mouth. <laughs> As they unearth truths, bury demons, and confront skeletons in the closet, psychological trauma and racism, their unraveling situation becomes, literally at one point, a minefield. Part war drama, part action movie, part crime caper, part political polemic. The Five Bloods certainly has all of Lee's hallmark ambition and inventiveness, and he gives us a valuable history lesson too. Black Deaths Matter. His 2018 Oscar winner Black Klansman was always going to be a tough act to follow, and The Five Bloods has split the critics somewhat, with ratings ranging from three to five stars. But a Lee offering will always shine a light on society's uncomfortable truths and spark much-needed debate. Carol, what did you think of it? I think that I'm probably um, one of the very few people who actually dislike this film intensely because I just found it was far too cluttered, far too many things going on. And unfortunately, it showed the Americans abroad in a very, very brash way, particularly in a, in a rather nasty chicken scene for us versus them, you know, the people who actually are the, the, the Vietnamese and the Americans thinking that they can just carry their Americanisms to 
great heights. And I just felt it was a bit of a Western, really, in search of the bullion rather than saying anything very, very deep about the Vietnamese um, war. But what did come across, and which I was very grateful for, was the fact that black American soldiers made up one-third of the U.S. Army in Vietnam, and they were only 11% of the population. So that goes to show just how lowly they were seen in the eyes of the American generals. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Carol, actually. I thought it was a bit of a mess. I thought there were sort of five films struggling to get out of a bag. And I wish he'd concentrated on one or two of them rather than so many. Patrick, did you enjoy it? No, I, I, I tend to agree with you, really. I think perhaps I enjoyed it slightly more than, than you two. I thought it was watchable, but I thought it was basically a cheesy adventure movie that tried to shoehorn in political points. Apparently, it was originally intended for Oliver Stone, and um, I, I kind of felt that it lacked subtlety in writing, direction, and in many of the performances, which is sadly a characteristic of some, not all Oliver Stone movies, but of some... Oliver Stone movies. I thought Clark Peters was very good as Otis. I thought he was outstanding. Delroy Lindo as Paul, I just felt was too much. He was just so over the top constantly. And I felt that the part was overplayed. I liked the flashbacks on filmed on 16 mil. And I thought that that, that was very well done. I loved the music. I mean, it's, it's some of my favorite music. But unfortunately, I felt it was a big step down from Black Klansman, his last film which I thought was outstanding. I was fascinated by the premise of it. I was so interested to know much more about their psychological, you know, what's been going on for them since the war, how their lives panned out, what they, what they thought about it, reflecting on it. I wanted it to be more of a buddy movie between the four of them. And it was like a, a film of, yeah, like you said, many parts. And for me, that is the most interesting element there. But I think he missed a trick not to explore that further. It was interesting that I, I enjoyed the contemporary music from the period, but the incidental music I found incredibly irritating. I totally and utterly agree with you. And it drowned it out some of the dialogue as well. Yeah, it could have been in any kind of film from Star Wars to, to whatever. And really, why did Spike Lee decide to have Wagner's Die Valkyrie as they went down the Mekong River? You know, it was just completely over the top, you know, conquering the- heroes. But there was a reference to Apocalypse Now when with the helicopters coming into that, which really worked, but it just didn't work. There were all sorts of, I thought, shoehorned references to other films, which I didn't need. I, I thought they tried to mention the Treasure of the Sierra Madre and uh, Bridge on the River Kwai and all these other things, which are fine, but completely out of place in this film, I thought. Patrick, did you, did you spot it, those, I'm sure? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, I felt that was a bit clumsy. It was very reminiscent of other films. It also reminded me very much of David O. Russell's Three Kings. I don't know if any of you have seen that. Also about a bunch of blokes trying to secure some bullion, which uh, they, they've come across. Um, a bit reminiscent of Treasure Island, I suppose, in a way. But yes, it was relentlessly intertextual. Lots of references to other films, lots of use of music at the time. I completely agree with you about the, the non-diegetic music, Terence Blanchard. I thought that was really jarring. I, when I said I liked the music, I liked, as you say, I liked the Marvin Gaye and Curtis Mayfield and stuff like that. I thought that, that was very good. But, yeah, a disappointment overall. Okay, that's The Five Bloods, and that's available on Netflix. And next up is Carol. My choice is Kings of the Road, which is a a new German cinema from 1976. It's quite a long film. It's 169 minutes, but bear with it because it's absolutely astonishing film. You get to know the characters very, very well and the the premise behind the whole thing. It's the third film in Wim Wenders' Road Trilogy. And this one is about a a pair of unlikely traveling companions who find some connection via their interactions on the road, their north to south journey through West Germany along the border to East Germany, uh, without any intended destination. But what does link them up is cinema, because Bruno, who's a cinema projector repairman who lives out of his converted moving van, goes from small town to small town, repairing projector and meeting the people behind the cinema. It's absolutely wonderful. And Robert, who's the unexpected traveling companion, is a well-dressed man who we first see speeding dangerously along various back roads. 
before driving his Volkswagen Beetle directly into the Elbe. And Bruno witnesses the event as he's shaving by his van. And after Robert drags himself out of the river with his suitcase, Bruno offers him dry clothes and a ride. And then the film begins. Fabulous. Sue, what did you think? Oh, I'm a huge Finn Benders fan, and I could eulogise all day about this film. I, it's, Benders was called the poet of the screen, and for me it's real, is poetry in motion, um, literally as it's a road trip. But it sort of combines American road trip traditions, which are always very seductive, with European art house sensibilities, and these two things come together so well. Particularly moving is the sweeping, empty listless landscape that, that Robbie Muller, his cinematographer, brilliantly photographs to convey Germany trying to find itself again after the war, trying to find its identity. And this sort of listless, dreamy quality of the landscape so well represents that. You know, there's so much to unpick in every scene, or you can just go with the ride, and it is, uh, it is wonderful, yes. Patrick? Hmm, well, I, I was really pleased to see this film because I had never seen it before. I don't particularly regard myself as a Vendors fan, but I like one or two of his films, but I, I enjoyed this very much. And just to echo really what Sue just said, the landscape cinematography was just stunning, just stunning. And I actually found that perhaps more compelling than the characters. The characters were very engaging at times. They could also be extremely irritating. They were very self-obsessed. They're full of self-pity. All the problems in their life were due to women, apparently. <laughs> and uh, they occasionally did get on my nerves. But every then it would cut back to those, as you say, those empty landscapes. One thing I, I must say, as I was watching, it reminded me somewhat of Edward Hopper's paintings. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if they were an influence. And I couldn't believe it. I looked it up. I did not know this before. And Vin Vendors has just made a short film called Two or Three Things I Know About Edward Hopper, which is showing in, a, in an art installation. So clearly he was very influenced by him. And I thought it was a beautiful film. And I don't think it was too long, Carol. It, it was a film that needed that. It wasn't a fast-paced film. It needed that time. Well, I have to confess that I gave up after two hours. I just, it wasn't for me. I got fed up with these irritating characters and I just thought it was yards of nothingness opening up very, very slowly. And I'm sorry, I completely lost patience with it. And there were some scenes in it that I wish I could unsee. I won't say I hated it because I, I was curious about it and I've always heard about it and never seen it, but it really, really wasn't for me. I just thought it was pretentious tosh so anyway that's me um i know i, I know that people love it because everything i've read about it is it's fantastic it seemed very old-fashioned as well even for, for for 1976 i mean i i accept the beautiful film work and things but oh three hours of it no 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 thank you so you're a vim vendors fan i know if i could suggest to um listeners that wings of desire is perhaps more accessible in vendors film if you haven't seen that that is a wonderful film so perhaps if you need to build up to this three hour you could sort of revisit wings of desire made in the 80s i think it was um, I, yes, I, I enjoyed an american friend i did enjoy yes. um but yeah that was based on the ripley novels Patricia, yes it was isn't it? yeah yeah mm. But Carol, you, you chose this. Had you seen it before? No, I hadn't seen it before, but I, like Sue, I'm a great Wim Benders fan. And I just loved finding out about some of the characters that they meet along the way. Mm -hmm. But what I love about Wim Benders and other directors like him is that they just leave. It's up to you to fill in the gaps. If you want to know about the person, then you can just imagine perhaps something about them that is unspoken. And probably that's exactly what you hated about the whole, the whole film. Well, I, or I, disliked, I, shall I say. I can create my own characters. I don't, I don't need someone else to give me a, a, a colouring book to, to fill in. Didn't. Wasn't it wonderful seeing the old cinemas, though, um, being repaired? And you sort of got this hope that cinemas and the old um, print that he was working on when he went to visit his dad was... It's sort of a hope that they're going to sort of help write a new history for Germany. That's what it felt like to me. They were sort of being repaired to move on to that new era. Yeah. What I did like, funnily enough, was the um, incidental music. I thought it was fantastic. And there were some good tracks from the period as well. So should we listen mm. to a little bit of the soundtrack? Mm. 
And the incidental music there for Kings of the Road was by Axel Lindstedt. Now Patrick is going to introduce the third Cine Circle film. Bringing Up Baby, which was released in 1938, directed by Howard Hawks and starring Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, was a flop at the time, but has since come to be regarded as one of the greatest of all screwball comedies. In this clip, we find ourselves in Hepburn's Connecticut house. She is in the shower. Paleontologist Grant is wearing one of her negligees. Don't ask, we'll explain in a minute if you haven't seen it before. The doorbell rings. It is her aunt, played by Mae Robson. Oh, I can see this poor little scatterbrain. My goodness, the man who gets... The man who gets you is going to have a lifetime of misery. Everything's going to be all right. Yes, everything's going to be... What do you want? Who are you? Who are you? What, who are you? What do you want? Well, who are you? I don't know. I'm not quite myself today. Well, you look perfectly idiotic in those clothes. These aren't my clothes. Well, where are your clothes? I've lost my clothes. Well, why are you wearing these clothes? Because I just went gay all of a sudden. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. So, in the Sight and Sound Critics poll of 2012, Bringing Up Baby was eighth equal highest placed comedy. So, you guys, does it deserve its current exalted reputation or were audiences right to dismiss it back in 1938? What did you think, Sandy? I loved it. It's it's a little bit dated. It's of its period, but it, I thought it was still funny. The speed of the dialogue is really quite scary at times. You don't get it all, but it means you can watch it again and get something different next time, I think. I thought it worked really well. It's Yeah, it's funny. I think Cary Grant is one of those people, one of the very, very few actors that I can honestly say I've never seen a film with him in that I haven't enjoyed. I don't think he made a bad film, but um, I'm sure someone can, can prove me wrong on that. But, None but the Lonely Heart. <laughs> I haven't seen it. <laughs> no, I thought it was great. And it was an hour and a half, which is the right length for a film, if you ask me. <laughs> Carol, what did you think? I thought it was great fun. As you say, it was rather dated, but who cares when you have Cary Grant in, in a picture? And he looked so incredibly young as well. And I loved the opening scene where they get right into the, the dilemma that they're going to face. And that, that's so beautifully done. And with his fiancée, who um, says that she will follow him to the ends of the earth but won't give him children, you know, that, that kind of resonated with him at the time. And then he uh, meets the luscious, fast-talking heiress and is very smitten by her. But it's great, great fun. And, and I think uh, it's the perfect lockdown film. Sue, are you a fan? Uh, no, no, I'm not. No. <laughs> in fact, this, this is probably the most irritated I've been in lockdown, and that's saying something. I think I might be allergic to two words, screwball and comedy, when put together. I found it irritating and annoying, and it felt like the worst sort of Hollywood excess. You've got big budget, big stars. Let's bring in a leopard. You know, why not? Yeah, it just felt like... I couldn't see the point, and I kept thinking, actually, that oh, Audrey Hepburn would have made a better scatterbrain Susan with better comic timing, and James Stewart would have been a better um, befuddled professor, because I felt that Cary Grant was a bit stiff in that role, and, and apparently they had to have comic timing training, and they kept falling about laughing at, at each other, but you know, at least they were having fun, you know. <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? I mean, if it doesn't, if it doesn't make you laugh, then obviously a comedy is a failure for you. You know, it just doesn't. But um, I must admit, I did laugh. Comedy over the decades sometimes doesn't translate well, but I thought it was it stood up pretty well. I, I think it's a marvelous film. I thought I thought it was hilarious. I, I love the screwball comedy. I think from the early thirties to the early forties was the great age of romantic comedy, screwball comedy, and I don't think anything recently comes anywhere near that. What I was going to say is, um, amazingly, although they're totally different films, it was similar to Kings of the Road in that a lot of the dialogue was improvised. They were just given the basic situation and basic dialogue, but encouraged very much to improvise, not only verbally, but also with physical business. And I think what Sue's referring to is Walter Catlett, who played the constable, was a veteran of vaudeville comedy, and he was acted almost as a sort of co-director as well in the improvisational sequences. The bit of the clip where, where Carrie Grant is in the, the negligee and answers the door to her aunt and who arrives with the dog 
And then Catherine Hepburn joins in. I thought that was a masterpiece of comedy, that, that whole sequence. And the other thing I would just like to say is I think how clever it is that the whole kind of sexual comedy is, is brought into this film. In as much as uh, it's, it's really a comedy about emasculation. The first thing that Cary Grant loses is his ball when he's playing golf. And then he loses his car. She takes his car, which is another kind of male phallic kind of symbol. Then he's top hat gets squashed <laughs> when uh, he slips on the olive. Um, then he loses his clothes. She takes all these clothes away, hence why he's wearing the negligee. And, and then, of course, he loses his bone uh, and uh, <laughs> the, the intercostal clavicle. And he kept, kept loses his identity as well because he has to pretend that he's someone else. And I, I think that was brilliantly done by Grant. Carol, have you got any more defence of it? <laughs> Now, I talk about Screwball, yes, and if you don't like Screwball, then you possibly will lose the will to, to live because it doesn't tickle your funny bone. And the, the plot is absolutely absurd, but it's done with such lightness anyway and quick-wittedness. And, of course, everyone looks very glamorous too, so that's another part of this era where no one was allowed to not look their best, and uh, certainly they, they all do in this and Bringing Up Baby is available on the iPlayer for up to a year, I think, which is, uh, or even more than a year, which is good. And now I'm going to hand over to Patrick for a tribute to someone who was very much a part of the Chichester Cinema family. Barbara Ely, who died last month, arrived in Chichester from London in 1991 after a lifetime working in the health service, having graduated in medicine in the 1950s. On her arrival, she swiftly embarked on what proved to be an enduring love affair with Chichester Cinema. She was part of the committee which planned the first film festival in 1992, including 50 screenings of European and British films, and she became a trustee of the cinema. She also fought for the placing of a plaque commemorating the site of the first cinema in Chichester at the Old Corn Exchange in East Street. A stalwart member of Richard Cupidi's DreamWorks Film Education Group for about 10 years, she was also a regular member of a team of fellow dream workers at the annual quiz at the Minerva. Prior to the quiz each year, she would do the rounds of Chichester persuading local businesses to donate raffle prizes. In recent times, she had been an active member of the cinema education team, which is where I was lucky enough to meet her at sessions for both adults and students. When she wasn't actually presenting, she would always be there to help. Already this year, she had co-presented sessions on films based on the books of Daphne du Maurier with Rosemary Coxon and on animation director Tex Avery with me. At the time of her death, she was enthusiastically planning another session with Rosemary on post-war British crime films. Such was the breadth of her knowledge of and enthusiasm for films. She will be greatly missed by all of us at the cinema and would have been first in line for the reopening, I'm sure. And next, we'll be profiling the career of a film director. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. The profile this time is of a film director, but as is often the case, it's not a clear-cut distinction as Lawrence Kasdan is very much a screenwriter as well as a director. I'm going to consider his career as a director specifically here, and the diversity of his projects is one of the first things to strike you looking at a list of his films. What they have in common is that they are all so well written and are all character-driven stories. Born in 1949, Kasdan grew up in West Virginia. He took a job as an advertising copywriter, which he apparently did not enjoy, while he wrote screenplays. He sold a script to Steven Spielberg, which led to him being commissioned by George Lucas to write Raiders of the Lost Ark. He then scripted The Empire Strikes Back, before setting about his directorial debut with Body Heat, which he also wrote... Set in a heatwave, the film retains its contemporary setting while crackling with the witty dialogue and keep-them-guessing plot of a 40s film noir. The actors include William Hurt, Kathleen Turner, Ted Danson and Mickey Rourke. The character played by Turner runs into Hurt at a concert. 
You're staying down in Pinehaven. On the waterway. You have a house. How'd you know that? You look like Pinehaven. How does Pinehaven look? Well tended. I'm well tended, all right. Well tended. What about you? Me? Hmm. I need tending. I need someone to take care of me, someone to rub my tired muscles, smooth out my sheets. Get married. I just need it for tonight. Mm. <laughs> oh. In 1983, Kasdan directed again with The Big Chill. A group of seven former college friends have a reunion after the funeral of one of their friends. Once more, the characters are everything in this film, and the cast again shows his knack of hiring actors on their way up. Tom Berenger, Glenn Close, Jeff Goldblum, William Hurt again, Kevin Kline, Meg Tilly, you get the idea. Kevin Costner's small role ended up on the cutting room floor. Here, Kline and Goldblum are driving along, catching up, and Tilly, their dead friend's girlfriend, is in the back of the car. So what happened to your partner? No, he wasn't my partner. He just had the original idea for the club. He's out of it now. We weren't uh, conducive. We'd get together and hyper each other into a frenzy. Then his wife left him for a younger woman. He couldn't make love. Eventually he was hospitalized for being such a nerd. So he's out of it? Yeah, he's out. It's just me uh, looking for investors, really. Alex and I made love the night before he died. It was fantastic. He went out with a bang, not a whimper. Two years later came Silverado, written with his brother Mark, which is, to me, a great all-purpose Western. It scoops up almost every Western cliché and serves it afresh, unashamedly and very successfully. You'll find cattle thieves, wagon trains, engines, a saloon, gunfights, a dodgy card sharp, etc, etc. The dialogue is superb and the set piece is wonderful. Again, there is a large cast of leads with strong and funny writing to handle. Kevin Klein, Kevin Costner, he made it to the screen this time, Rosanna Arquette, Danny Glover, Brian Dennehy is a great heavy, Linda Hunt, Jeff Goldblum, and even John Cleese as a sheriff. Today, my jurisdiction ends here. Here is Kevin Klein and Linda Hunt. Some people think because they're stronger or meaner, they can push you around. I've seen a lot of that. But it's only true if you let it be. The world is what you make of it. I like your attitude, but it can be risky. I'm ready for that. What about you? I don't want you to get hurt. He can't hurt me. If he's dead. The next film Kasdan took the director's seat on couldn't have been more different. The Accidental Tourist. It's based on the excellent book by Anne Tyler and features William Hurt and Kathleen Turner plus Gina Davis. It was nominated for four Oscars and Davis won Best Supporting Actress. Hurt, an uptight travel writer, goes to pick up his dog from the kennels, where he meets Davis, who tries to persuade him to have his dog trained. Dogs that haven't been treated right. Hello, Edward. Even split personality. Split personality? Where your dog is, like, nice to you, but kills all others. Come on, Edward. Not that Edward bite me, of course. He just fell in love with me, like I think I was telling you. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. But I could train him in no time not to bite other people. You think about it and give me a call, Muriel. Remember? Muriel Pritchett. Let me give you my card. Oh, well, I'll bear that in mind. Thank you very much. Or just call for no reason. Call and talk. Talk? Sure. Talk about Edward, his problems. Talk about anything. Pick up the phone and just talk. Don't you ever get the urge to do that? Not really. You'll see there's almost a repertory company forming around Kasdan's films. And Klein and Hurt were in the next Kasdan film, I Love You to Death. Grand Canyon followed with Klein and Glover, then Wyatt Earp with Kevin Costner. 
It probably says a lot about a director when the stars come back time and time again to work with him. Klein returned for 1995's French Kiss as a heavily accented winemaker. Meg Ryan also stars. It's more of an out-and-out comedy than some of Kasdan's films up to that point, and in some ways shouldn't have worked. It's light and frothy, but in the end a very enjoyable, charming romp that I've found myself watching several times. Since then, Kasdan has directed Mumford, a comedy, and Dreamcatcher, a sci-fi horror flick. Dreamcatcher bombed at the box office, but it's based on a Stephen King story, and the screenplay is by Kasdan and William Goldman of Butch Cassidy, All the President's Men, Princess Bride fame. How could it be bad? Actually, thinking about it, I think I caught the last two-thirds of it on TV while in the States on holiday years ago. The fact that I remember an incomplete film from nearly 15 years ago makes me think it can't be that bad. The most recent film directed by Kasdan was Darling Companion in 2012, a comedy written by him and his wife Meg, starring his stalwart Kevin Klein and also Diane Keaton. My two favourite Kasdan films are Body Heat and Silverado, which lovingly take well-worn film genre, film noir and westerns, and breathes new life into them with great characters, masterful dialogue and gripping narratives. Even when he was not the writer, Kasdan brings a screenwriter's touch to his films. And at the very least, I always find them worth a look. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. A couple of podcasts ago, we were talking to Sue about what she and her family were doing in lockdown. And she mentioned her son, Joseph, who has started up his own film journal. And we're joined on the line now from Belfast with Joseph. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Glad to be here. Good. Everyone who comes on the podcast the first time, we like to ask them two questions, just to find out a little bit about them. The first is, what was the first film you remember seeing in a cinema? And the second question is, what film do you think should be compulsory viewing for everyone? So... What do you think? I had to, had a long, long think about this. I sat on my sofa for about, for about an hour. And I realized what I was doing was something akin to like an excavation of my own memory. So the more and more I dug, the more buried treasures I found that I had forgotten that they were there. So I dug a bit and I saw the remains of the time. I saw Miyazaki's Spirited Away or the brilliant French animation Belleville Rendezvous, both at New Park and two of the most poignant experiences I've had at the cinema. I remember disliking both because I was a bit too young at the time. And now my, I think my mind's caught up with my eyes and I, I remember them really fondly now, even though I've not watched them since. I went deeper and deeper until I couldn't dig anymore. And what I found was a fossil of a memory I had being at Disneyland in Florida and watching a film about the cartoons of Hanna-Barbera. I looked it up after remembering that and it was actually a 4D simulator experience, so not Technically a purist cinema, but it was a story about Dick Dastardly and Muttley kidnapping Elroy Jetson and Yogi Bear and Boo Boo have to give chase. Uh, That's a bit of an all-purpose um, one, isn't it? Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm remembering more and more. I remember now it was called The Futuristic World of Hanna-Barbera, which was unfortunately shut down in 2002, two years after I was there. I was there just after the turn of the millennium when they just opened the big uh, and now I looked it up, and even more upset, upsettingly, in its place now lies despicable me, Minion Mayhem. <laughs> <laughs> That's taken its place now. My compulsory film, I watched this last year, even though it was released in, I think, 2015 or 13. It would be Beasts of the Southern Wild by Ben Zeeplin, which I love to think is a kind of hybrid between American Southern Gothic and the kind of magic realists in the literary tradition. It's a film, more than any other, I think I've seen, that captures the imagination and wonder of the child so much and growing up and exploring the beauty of the world around her. But also it's quite, I think it's more prevalent as it goes by because it's, um, I think the film can be seen as an allegory for the devastation of Hurricane Katrina and also the disparity of wealth in America. And in a month where Arctic temperatures have risen to record highs, Beast of the Southern Wild reminds us of our growing environmental damage and the communities that are likely to suffer the most. In the film, uh, the magic realist element of the film comes when a giant prehistoric creature called the Auroch, it's an old cave painting, begin to thaw from the Arctic ice because of the rising temperatures. 
and start a devastating rampage towards a vulnerable community where a young girl called Hush Puppy lives, which I think is a really powerful image that stands as a message for our own ecological impact on the earth and the people that stand on the front line of humanity standing in nature's way. And I think it reminds us of the, the impact that we're having and beginning to uh, question ourselves in that kind of way. But I think that's very prevalent. As, uh, like I said, the Arctic's getting hotter and hotter. Or anything by Vim Vendors. <laughs> <laughs> we have been talking about Vim Vendors in this podcast, so um, that's interesting yeah. that you should mention that. Now, your film journal, how did you come to start it? I've always liked uh, writing about film. I did my degree in my master's in film, and I used to write for the Portsmouth newspaper doing uh, film reviews and culture reviews. But I really wanted to start the journal when this eight-hour film called In Course of the Miraculous by Cheng Ran came to an art gallery in Belfast called Mac, and I realized what I wanted to do was to go and watch it in its entirety for the whole eight hours and then write about it. And I didn't really have a platform to write about it back then, so I just thought, start your own website, which then became a physical journal, which has had three issues now, and the fourth coming up, which is about memory. The journal is called uh, Playtime. I stole the, the name from uh, Jacques Patton's film. So, who is it aimed at? It's aimed at, uh, it's a quite general, it doesn't have a niche audience per se, it's a quite a general journal, which is, I hope it is um, both academic and easy to read, <laughs> basically. I have a few stockists around Ireland and in the UK, and it's in the, the BFI library and at South Bank and the IFI in Dublin. My my work in, in my degree and my master's kind of bled into that, and so I've used a lot of stuff I wrote for those courses. It's now in the journal. So anyone that has an interest in cinema and the uh, analysis of cinema is a theme. So the first was time, the second was perception, the third was road, and this one is based on memory. And I hope to have a few issues in Stockton New Park pretty soon. I think I had the robe on there, so maybe listeners might even pick it up. Yeah. I think that would be a perfect place because the regulars at the cinema are definitely interested in film generally. Do, do you write it all? Do you have other writers? I have contributors, yeah. My mum has written a, a couple of pieces for me as well as doing some lino prints. That she's, that's a kind of new skill of hers that she's learned, which looks amazing. All my family, I've actually asked to write something now. Um, my brother and my dad too. And a couple of people I've met um, along the way on, on a film course or just friends who are interested in writing about film. And how often does it come out? I try to, I try to get it out every uh, two every year, which has been a struggle recently because of everything that's been going on. The last one, uh, the road issue came out last September and the new issue, I think, should be coming out this September. Would you, would you describe it as a highbrow publication or is it accessible to everyone, do you think? I hope it's a mixture of both. I hope there's um, insight in there and I hope it can be enlightening for people. But I do try and make it accessible so even people with just a kind of general interest in cinema, it's good to read for them. Do you know what the theme of the next one will be? After memory. Yeah, how far ahead yeah. do you plan? <laughs> I haven't planned it yet, but... I was thinking, or someone suggested the other day, maybe place, looking at how different places in the world are represented throughout the history of cinema and how that perception of, say, cities has changed. A vague idea for the next one, but I haven't really thought that much into it yet. So it's available in hard copy. Is it also available on the website? Yeah, there's a website. Um, it's www.playtimejournal.co.uk, which has every single thing that has been featured in the journal so far. And when you're going through the films that you're going to write about, obviously there's a certain amount of personal preference in that. Do you regard it as a very personal magazine? Yeah, I do. For example, um, I've written a lot about Vim Vendors over the years. But yeah, I think I was trying to make this new one about memory more personal because, you know, what is memory if it's not personal? So a couple of years ago, I was really struggling with dissociation and and I came to about that in terms of memory. And so I've written a piece called Becoming the Chula Chakri, which is based on an Amazonian myth of a creature that lives in the woods that lures you into the forest and takes your place. But it comes back, it looks like you, it's like a replicant, but it holds no memory and it holds no feeling. It's like a ghost that people would think it was you. It's like a, it's very similar to the doppelganger. So I was thinking that in the way of how our memories can become separate, how 
I was feeling at the time that my memories belonged to someone else, that I was no longer. So that was a very personal thing that I wrote. And yeah, people have been writing quite a lot about their experiences. And how have you been coping with lockdown? Are you, are you missing the cinema or do you catch up with I'm things online? I've signed up for both movie and the BFI player. So that's been keeping me busy going through the annals of that. I do miss our local cinema here, the QFT. Although, unfortunately, uh, my another favourite cinema here has been knocked down. The movie house has been knocked down. It's been replaced by offices and apartments, and it's a real shame. How long have you been in Belfast? I've lived here for coming up on five years, I think. I did my degree here for three years, then I moved to London for a year to do my master's, and then I moved back, and so I've been here for two years, I think. Is there a good film scene there? Yeah. Um, the film festival every year is brilliant. It's really good. It's got such a vast a vast collection and diverse collection of films and, and, and experiences and VR and stuff like that. It's, it's a really good cinema. Yeah, I think it's good. I think it's good. The QFD is kind of the hub of everything. So it's the independent cinema. It's a lot like New Park, actually. And you've seen a few films at the New Park. Have, yeah, well, I used to I used to be an usher. I used to oh. take tickets, and I, I think I worked behind the bar a couple of times. Yeah, so you... A lot of my uh, formative appearances at the cinema are in New Park. Okay, Joseph Gilson, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, brilliant, thank you. Okay. Good to speak to you. And to remind you, the website is www.playtimejournal.co.uk. The first issue was about time, the second was about perception, and the third theme was on road. I'm in the business of putting old heads on young shoulders, and all my pupils are the creme de la creme. It's time for some streaming recommendations. First will be Patrick, after this clip. That was Glass of Soju, which is sung by Choi Woo-shik, one of the stars of Korean movie Parasite, winner of the Best Picture at this year's Oscars. He sings it over the end credits of the film. The lyrics of the song are by the director Bong Joon-ho, and if you check out the lyrics translation, you will find that it acts as a coda to the main narrative of this pitch-black satirical comedy, now finally available to stream in the UK. And Parasite is available on many streaming services. Now, Carol. I highly recommend Leviathan, which was uh, screened at the cinema a few years ago. And it's a Russian film based in, in Siberia. And it's on BBC iPlayer on the 21st of July. And it's about Nikolai, who's a hot-headed car mechanic who lives with his wife, Lilia, and his son, Roma, in a small seaside northern town. And with the help of his old friend, Dmitri, who's now a Moscow lawyer, he's appealing the result of a court case brought on by the corrupt mayor to seize his home and land. And with his opponent not playing to the rules, Nikolai finds himself in a David and Goliath battle of biblical proportions. It's fabulous. And as well as being on the iPlayer, it's widely available to rent as well. So even after it goes from the iPlayer, you can find it. My first choice is one you may not have heard of, but gives an early glimpse of some actors who went on to be big names in the cinema. Last month I talked about journalists in films, and I could have included this one. Between the Lines, from 1977, is about an underground newspaper that's forced to become mainstream for commercial reasons. The stars are John Hurd, Lindsay Krauss, Jeff Goldblum, who keeps popping up, Jill Eikenbury and Bruno Kirby. It's directed by Joan Micklin-Silver, who later made Crossing Delancey and has worked a lot in TV. Between the Lines is undemanding and fun, and can be watched for free on YouTube. There are also a couple of songs by Southside Johnny and the Asbury Dukes, a band for whom I have a particular fondness. Is the way it's going to be? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes you see me, sometimes you don't, whenever you feel like it. Is that the way you want it? Is that your idea of a good time? You want it straight? Yeah. Okay, okay. I'll give it to you straight. 
Every week you're gonna quit, you're gonna go off and write your goddamn book. And every week you find an excuse not to do what it. What does writing have you to do? You don't wanna write. You wanna find an what excuse. What does writing not a book to have to do with it? one more thing to blame if you don't. You know what you want? You want me to follow you off to Woodstock or wherever the hell writers with hay fever go. And you'll be a great writer and I'll bake bread. Maybe I'll get to take pictures of my bread. Maybe I'll get to take pictures of you being a great writer. Well, forget it. Patrick. My second film is not so much a recommendation as a provocation. Paul Verhoeven's 1995 film, Showgirls, is a self-proclaimed satire on the exploitative culture of Las Vegas. And it swept the boards at the awards that year. The Razzie Awards, that is, for Worst Picture, Worst Director, Worst Actress, Worst Screenplay, and several others. Inevitably, it's now a cult film and has been subjected to a critical re-evaluation with a new documentary, You Don't Know Me, available on BFI Player. And the original film is available to stream on a range of platforms. Here are Elizabeth Berkeley and Gina Gershon uttering some of its imperishable dialogue. I didn't like showing off the cheetah. Why not? I like looking at him there. Everybody like looking at him there. Made me feel like a hooker. You are a whore, darling. No, I'm not. We all are. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. Maybe you are a whore, Crystal, but I'm not. You and me, we're exactly alike. Thank you, Patrick, for being provocative. Uh, Carol? I think that's really a must-see, Patrick. Thank you for that recommendation. Uh, my second choice is another Cary Grant film, Suspicion, which is a classic thriller by Hitchcock, in which a timid heiress becomes convinced that her husband is trying to kill her. And it stars Joan Fontaine, who won the best uh, Oscar for her role in the part. And it's available for a year on BBC iPlayer. Oh, I'm just beginning to understand. You thought I was going to kiss you, didn't you? Weren't you? Of course not. I was merely reaching around you, trying to fix your hair. What's wrong with my hair? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. It would have been extremely discourteous for me to bring the subject up. Are you serious? Well, of course I'm serious. I may seem provincial, but frankly, I, I can't understand men like you. You always give me the feeling that you're laughing at me. No, I give you my word. But your hair's all wrong. But it had such wonderful possibilities that I, well, I got excited. For the moment, I became a, a passionate hairdresser. What's wrong with it? Let me show you. Two very different Cary Grant films in this edition. I see part of our job as reminding you about films you might not have thought about for a while. The Pink Panther series started in 1963, and that was the first time we saw Inspector Jacques Clouseau. He returned for A Shot in the Dark, and then played by Alan Arkin rather than Peter Sellers in 1968's Inspector Clouseau. Sellers was back for probably the highlight of the Pink Panther franchise, with Return of the Pink Panther in 1975, with Christopher Plummer taking on the David Niven role from the original as Sir Charles Lytton. Sir Charles Lytton, I arrest you in the name of the law, and I warn you that anything you say will be... But, look, before you get all worked up, there's something you must know. He intends to kill all of us. Who? Colonel Sharkey. Good Sharky, Colonel God. We were just talking about you. <laughs> well, as you can see, I've got the whole case buttoned up. Everything is sewn up. This is Sir Charles Phantom, the famous Pink Lytton, who stole the... What did you say? He was, he was going to kill us, did you? Well, if you're going to persuade him to change his mind. You're joking, of course. No. You're going to kill me as well? With pleasure. Is there anything I can do that will... Make you change your mind? Oh, well, there's nothing that I can think of. I'm just here to say that Return of the Pink Panther is still brilliantly, consistently hilarious, no matter how many times you watch it. It can, and should, be rented on Amazon, Google Play and YouTube. Next, Carol's going to talk about food. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! 
Food is used as a tool for the filmmaker to communicate with the audience, uncovering perhaps new sides of a character, depending on what they choose to indulge in, signaling romance, or a deep sense of friendship, or even a profound understanding of different cultures. Cooking a meal is an act of love, of care, and yes, manipulation, and showing off in some of those cases. And sometimes, too, it can be used simply to make us salivate. There's no denying that a well-shot plate of food or the sight of freshly baked bread can instantly kick off the appetite. Well, for this past restaurant critic, it does. In Ratatouille, it was food that transported the cynical food critic back to the comforts of his childhood, while in The Help, it was a weapon of revenge. In Babette's Feast, it was a gift to show solidarity. Lady and the Tramp and Pulp Fiction both used food as flirtation. In Marie Antoinette, it was the choice of food that helped denote decadence with those macaroons. Spinal Tap used food as a trigger for a true rock star diva moment. More about food scenes in these and other films that caught my eye and my juices follow. And who would have guessed that one of the most romantic scenes in cinema would involve two dogs eating scraps in an alleyway? Yes, it's Lady and the Tramp, and yet the iconic spaghetti kiss from Disney's 1955 animated film has Tony the chef singing Bella Notte on the soundtrack. And as Tramp proves, there's no greater act of chivalry than offering your date the last meatball. Here's a clip. Now, here you are, the best spaghetti in a town. Oh, this is the night. It's a beautiful night. And we call it a bella notte. Look at the skies, they have stars in their eyes. One of my favorite films is Babette's Feast, a 1987 Danish Oscar winning film. When a French housekeeper wins the lottery, she unselfishly uses her new fortune to prepare a sumptuous meal for her employers, two pious Danish sisters and their fellow parishioners on Jutland. Empire magazine has called the film Gastro Cinema at its most sensual and intoxicating. Though the diners attempt to deny earthly pleasures of fine red wine, decadent cheeses and other Gallic edibles, their eyes glaze over with hedonistic delight as they politely but ravenously scrape their plates clean. The actual preparation and cooking of the meal took two weeks to film. 1961's Breakfast at Tiffany's Holly Golightly, Audrey Hepburn of course, only has breakfast outside the New York jewellery store, popping out of a cab in the early morning light to peer into the shop window while enjoying a pastry and some coffee in a paper cup. Decades later, the moment still retains the peak of glamour. Here's a clip. Look, why don't we go out and have a drink or take a walk or something to celebrate? All right. I think there's some champagne in the icebox. Why don't you open it while I get dressed? Okay. I don't think I've ever drunk champagne before breakfast before. With breakfast on several occasions. But never before before. Now, I've got a wonderful idea. We could spend the whole day doing things we've never done before. We'll take turns. Plus something you've never done, and me. Because I can't really think of anything I've never done. Like Water for Chocolate, a 1992 film from Mexico, it's a real magical realism movie that showcases the power of food over anyone who eats it. It revolves around the young girl who cooks those intense meals and her forbidden love, a masterpiece. 
The Lunchbox from India came out in 2013, and it's also one of my favourites, and it tells the poignant story of a mistaken lunchbox delivery which connects Ila, a neglected housewife, to Sajan, played by Ifan Khan, a much-missed actor, and who is a lonely man on the verge of retirement. Through their exchanged notes in the lunchbox, Sajan and Ila develop an unexpected relationship. The heady mix portrays loneliness and life truths with food as a backdrop, the go-between. The Godfather, Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 much-loved and quoted film, has a full-blown recipe tucked within its elegant drama. Vito Corleone's close associate, the portly Peter Clemenza, offers his version of the perfect pasta sauce over the stoves to Al Pacino's character. <laughs> Come over here, kid. Learn something. You never know. You might have to cook for 20 guys someday. You see? You start out with a little bit of oil, and you fry some garlic. Then you throw in some tomatoes, some tomato paste. You fry it. You make sure it doesn't stick. Mm-hmm. You got it to a boil. You shove in all your sausage and your meatballs. Huh? And a little bit of wine. And a little bit of sugar. And that's my trick. Why don't you cut the crap? I got more important things for you to do. How's Paulie? Oh, Paulie won't see him no more. In 1990s Goodfellas, in prison, dinner was always a big thing. So much so that the wise guys ate better than most people on the outside. Bobby Darren's Beyond the Sea plays in the background as the gangsters prepare their meal. Garlic sliced so thin with a razor blade that it would liquefy in the pan with just a little oil. Meatballs and a tomato sauce, that's a little too oniony. Steak cooked medium rare, iced lobsters, prosciutto, salami, cheese, red wine, and a good scotch. Maybe crime does pay after all. In Spinal Tap, Rob Reiner's heavy metal mockumentary character whines that, I don't want this, I want large bread, but I can rise above it, I'm a professional. Look, 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 there's a little problem with the, uh, look, this, this miniature bread, it's like, I've been working with this now for about half an hour, and I can't figure out, let's say I want a mm-hmm. bite, right, you got this? You'd like bigger bread? Exactly, I don't yeah. understand how, it's like... You could this, though. I mean, you could well, no, it. then it's half the size. No, not that... the bread. No, you can fold the meat. Yeah, but then, it, then it breaks bread. up, it breaks no, no, apart no, no, no. like you this. You put it on the bread like this, see? Yeah. But then if then you keep folding it, it keeps breaking. Well, you keep and then you'll, everything has to be folded. And yeah. then it's this. And I don't want this. I want large bread so that I can put this. Right. So then it's like this. Yeah. But this doesn't work because then it's all... Because it hangs out like this. <laughs> Look, yeah. would you be holding no, this? No, I wouldn't want to eat. I wouldn't want to put no. it in my mouth. All right. The miniature bread catastrophe is a beautiful parody over every self-absorbed rock star to have kicked off over something as ludicrous as the food they're served backstage, a gem of a 1984 film. In Five Easy Pieces, a 1970 film, the famous chicken salad sandwich scene homes in on Robert, played by Jack Nicholson, who just wants some toast to go with his omelette. But the waitress is stubbornly sticking to the diner's no substitutions rule. Okay, I'll make it as easy for you as I can. I'd like an omelet, plain, and a chicken salad sandwich on wheat toast. No mayonnaise, no butter, no lettuce, and a cup of coffee. For number two, chicken salad sandwich. All the butter, the lettuce, the mayonnaise, and a cup of coffee. Anything else? Yeah, now all you have to do is hold the chicken, bring me the toast, give me a check for the chicken salad sandwich, and you haven't broken any rules. There will be a second helping of food in cinema next time. Vouchers? We ain't got no vouchers. We don't need no vouchers. I don't have to show you any stinking vouchers. Last time, Patrick talked about Beethoven, and here, as promised, is a second bite.
the last podcast, I looked at the way one of Beethoven's most famous piano sonatas was used in two contrasting films, Bernard Rose's Immortal Beloved, with Gary Oldman as Beethoven, and Louis Malle's wartime drama set in occupied France, La Comme Lucienne. Beethoven's piano sonata number 23, the Appassionata, completed around 1806, is not one that one is likely to hear played by a novice, requiring a virtuoso such as Wilhelm Kempf, whom we heard just now, to negotiate its dramatic opening movement. In 1944, as the fictional events of Lacombe Lucien were taking place in France, across the Channel in England, novelist E.M. Forster and director Humphrey Jennings were starting to put together the Impressionist documentary A Diary for Timothy for the Crown Film Unit. A propaganda piece it is, but of the most poignant, poetic kind, lasting a little under 40 minutes, taking as its starting point the birth of a baby, Timothy James Jenkins, on the 3rd of September, the fifth anniversary of the start of the war. Through the words of Forster, narrated by Michael Redgrave, and the images of Jennings, we are offered an introduction to some British citizens, an engine driver, a farmer, a pilot recovering from injuries incurred when he was shot down over France, a miner, and the British Jewish pianist Myra Hess playing one of her lunchtime concerts, which continued throughout the war at the National Gallery. The words are addressed to the baby Timothy, speculating as to the kind of Britain in which he will grow up once the war is over. As Hess plays the Appassionata Sonata, we hear snatches of a news report on the Battle of Arnhem, and then Michael Redgrave speaking Forster's words. For the last three days they had had no water, very little but small arms ammunition, and rations cut to one-sixth. Luckily or unluckily, it rained and they caught the water in their capes and drank that. October now, and the war certainly won't be over by Christmas, and the weather doesn't suit us, and one-third of all our houses have been damaged by enemy action. They do like the music that lady was playing. Some of us think it is the greatest music in the world, yet it's German music, and we're fighting the Germans. There's something you'll have to think over later on. Two years later, the war was over, and in Hollywood, Betty Davis was coming near to the end of her tempestuous relationship with Warner Brothers Studios. In Deception, directed by Irving Rapper, she plays Christine Radcliffe, a concert pianist reunited with her cellist lover, Carol, played by Paul Henreid, whom in an obvious echo of the role he played in Casablanca, she had thought dead in the war. He returns, they rekindle their relationship, and are married, much to the chagrin of the waspish older composer Hellenius, played by Claude Rains, who in Henry's absence has been playing the role of mentor, sponsor, and, it is strongly suggested, lover. Hellenius arrives unexpectedly at the wedding reception and immediately sets about inflaming the jealousy of the new husband. Christine attempts to defuse the situation by an impromptu performance. I've been asked to play. Something tender it should be, and pathetic. A little absurd. Chopin, perhaps. Carol has asked me to play the Appassionata. I I haven't tried it for a long time, so you'll you'll have to bear with me. Has everyone a comfortable place to sit? Good. Deception is excessively melodramatic to an often hilarious degree, employing every stereotype and cliché of classical musicians. 
but it remains hugely enjoyable if you're in the mood for something preposterous. And the music is terrific, including an original cello concerto composed by Eric Wolfgang Korngold. The impact of the music here is in complete contrast to its use in A Diary for Timothy. In Jennings' documentary, its performance by a Jewish-British pianist expresses the tragedy of the war and how a country which had produced, in Forster's words, the greatest music in the world, could have come to embrace Nazism. Before the two wars, a performance of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony featured prominently in Forster's novel Howard's End. But in Deception, it is an expression of the sexual magnetism of Betty Davis as she plays Henry and Rain's grip their goblets of champagne, looking sidelong daggers at each other. Rain's grips his glass so hard that it breaks in his hand, interrupting the performance. The power of Beethoven's music is such that it always threatens to overwhelm any film in which it features. And it will be interesting, I hope, to explore in a future education session how his other music, including his orchestral, choral and chamber works, have been used by different directors, including Kubrick, Godard, Lean and Truffaut. Put the candle back. Okay, that's all for this time. We'll return in about a month with more film chat and some more recommendations. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can contact us via Walter at chichestercinema.org and Market Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and thanks to the podcast team. Until the next time, it's goodbye from Carol. Bye-bye, everyone, and um, we'd love to hear from you, as Sandy says. And from Patrick. Goodbye, everybody. And from Sue. Goodbye and see you next time. And from me, Sandy. Goodbye. Keep safe. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Find us at chichestercinema.org.